In this episode, we speak with Colonel Vembu Shankar, a decorated Indian Army veteran. We'll find out about leadership lessons from an anti-terrorist operation he led, what his friend MS Dhoni says about decision making, how Colonel Shankar used his social engineering skills to lay an ambush on the world's greatest footballer, and what is Project Sambandh all about. This one is a power-packed interview. This is the CTQ Smartcast, where we have conversations about up-leveling, deliberate practice and getting future relevant. So, welcome Colonel Shankar, welcome to the CTQ uh, Smartcast. Thank you very much, welcome and uh, it's a great pleasure to be part of this podcast. It's it's a new experience for me uh, in this new normal. Right. Yeah. So I, I know Colonel Shankar uh, personally, but uh, when I asked him to send me an introduction, he sent me a very pithy introduction. He said, just introduce me as Colonel Vibhu Shankar, Indian Army veteran, founder Project Samban. Uh, but I know that there are many, many aspects uh, to Colonel Shankar from, you know, knowing how to do magic to philately to collecting autographs to being one of the most flamboyant quiz masters that I know to a great quizzer. Uh, to being a decorated, uh, you know, army veteran as well. So, anything that I've missed out in, in all of these? Uh, well, uh, well, I like to be, uh, you know, a master of uh, none but a jack of all. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah, this covers a lot of things that I do. It keeps me busy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, let's let's get started with, uh, you know, with, with a very basic uh, question. We know that you are a decorated uh, army officer. Can you, you know, give us a brief highlight of, you know, of, of your army career? Oh, well, I've had a very interesting career. First of all, I belong to a completely uh, non-military family. And my first exposure to uniform was as a boy scout when I was about uh, 10 odd years old. And that, that was what inspired me to join the army. And the only way that I knew to join the army was to the National Defense Academy. And I went through the uh, training at National Defense Academy and the Indian Military Academy. Being colorblind, army was the only option that I had. And that's what I wanted to join after seeing all these Republic Day parades. And there used to be a serial called Paramvir Chakra, which used to come in Doodarshan those days. And of course, Shah Rukh Khan also played an important role uh, coming in that serial called Fauji. Uh, so I, I went in a dream to National Defense Academy and then was hit by hard reality that uh, life is not all that rosy uh, in the armed forces training, but it gave me a great uh, base and a great foundation. And I got commissioned in 1997 and I served all over the country. In fact, I had a great opportunity to serve in one of our neighboring countries too. Uh, I've been across uh, India, East, West, North, South, and I've had a very, very satisfying career in the armed forces. And after about 20 years, um, I, I got a calling in life and I said that uh, this is the time that I should prematurely retire. So I got commissioned in 1997 and retired in 2017 from the Eastern sector. All right. That's, I think, uh, you know, you uh, because I asked brief highlights, you just briefly touched upon, you know, the uh, different uh, areas uh, and aspects of what you've done. Um, and I, I don't want you to put you in a spot where, uh, you know, you have to tell me something that uh, you should not be telling. And then, you know, next day I see, see you doing something to me. My kids are going to worry about <laughs> the welfare of their father. So I need to take out the pen and then click it like MIB. <laughs> Right. So you're also a Shauri Chakra winner or an awardee. Uh, so 
talk to me about that you know how did that happen and and i i, I guess that was uh, when you were just in into your career you you were very young uh, went behind the years oh uh, yes absolutely i, I think uh, there was a great opportunity for me like a, a typical youngster in the army i was posted to a field area initially i started my career in the indo tibet border uh, in fact the fourth day of my uh, service career i was at 18000 feet somebody coming from uh, uh, 0 feet uh, mean sea level uh, and going right up to 18000 feet uh, in snow with just uh, about 10 odd soldiers to command and then uh, with just about a year of service my unit had moved to jammu and kashmir in a counter terrorism role and i was um, uh, in charge of a company there which was commanding about 100 odd uh, soldiers and uh, right just this was in 1998 when the operation took place i had just about a year of service with uh, very less of on ground experience but uh, i had uh, the backing of the good training that i had in national defense academy and the indian military academy and of course great troops uh, whom i commanded uh, so this operation actually happened uh, over a period of 3 days where uh, we got information on the evening of the first day and then we followed up with the information thinking that this is just another information which keeps coming about terrorists in your area and um, so we just went uh, uh, thinking that this is another information but then the information developed nothing happened on the first night uh the second day we were searching for these terrorists and uh, one of the other um, patrols encountered these terrorists and out of which one of them escaped and we were tasked to look after i mean to try and hunt down the uh terrorists who had escaped uh, we were unsuccessful the whole day and then we thought maybe the operation would be called off and the weather was not very good and uh, we are talking about altitudes of uh, 13000 feet uh, snowbound and uh, on the third uh, that was the second night uh, second night third morning where uh, we encountered or we saw some terrorists early in the morning at about 4430 using our night vision goggles in fact my sentry saw and by the time he could give me the night vision goggles i could see a couple of uh, i i wouldn't know terrorists or not but i could see a couple of people crossing into the woods hardly about uh, 100 yards away but we followed them up uh, much later uh, we waited till daybreak and then followed them up uh, pursued them and uh, came up with a plan and uh, that's how we encountered they they saw us first and uh, uh, we got into a firefight and uh, we eliminated uh, these terrorists uh, there were about uh, six of them in uh, in the party that we encountered but the whole operation which uh, uh, started on the previous day and ended about two days later which involved my complete uh, unit Uh, we had eliminated about 13 terrorists which was uh, uh, something for the first uh, which had happened at that time and more important is not the number of terrorists that uh, uh, we had eliminated but uh, not a single soldier of any of our parties even uh, uh, you know suffered a scratch and that was hailed as a great operation and uh, since i led it and i took some decisions uh, during that time i was awarded the shorya chakra by uh, it was announced much later by the president of india so that was you know very early into career and i think uh, when you're young you do all these uh, crazy stuff <laughs> right right a couple of uh, things uh, struck me when you uh, said that you know you're just one year into service but you are already leading uh, a, a team yes you uh, you know come through the you know i am a very you know turned into officers a whole indian i am experience is uh, designed to make you officers 
but how does it feel you know to suddenly now command a unit with probably many people much much older than you uh, having had lot of you know years of experience of real uh, you know work on the ground as well uh, how do you you know get that confidence to just go there and command well that's a very good question you know it, it, this is very very pertinent especially for young officers in the indian army uh, first of all our training as an officer is 3 uh, years in nda and 1 year at the ima uh, which is 4 years and this is where at nda they make you from boys to men and they train you really really hard and as well as the uh, at ima uh, they train you hard to come up with all situations but that's just the uh, training with where there's no live rounds being fired at you and another th- uh, aspect that you brought out was about uh, commanding troops who are much elder to you as well as got more experience and the army initially beds you in such a way that uh, you are actually placed under them initially uh, for about uh, a month or so uh, to understand uh, what their mindset is because i am from uh, down south i'm from tamil nadu and i was commanding troops who were predominantly dogras uh you know so uh, understanding their culture understanding their thought process is very very important and also to understand what are the strengths of those uh, soldiers and uh, sometimes weaknesses too so this uh, this is a process of training and the indian army uh, uh, prides itself in this training and how to get the young officers to be accepted by the soldiers as well as the soldiers to accept the uh, young officers and this kind of junior leadership is what uh, has brought uh, laurels uh, uh, for the indian army as well as for the armed forces and the country so uh, to, to to answer your question short i think it's all basis of training and uh, the ethos of the indian army right right yeah yeah um, you know we uh, you know I, i choose to think we work a lot with uh, companies organizations and you know where they are trying to stay relevant uh, stay future relevant right Uh, so a lot of that also centers around organization design and you know how to prepare so a lot of what you are uh, saying resonates a lot uh, you know with with our uh, work as well uh, one thing that we have noticed is when we talk to these you know private companies uh, that that i'm talking about uh, we talk about motivation for you know the employees right and and in the context of motivation we talked about how the organization design has changed over the years where earlier it was the command and control and generally when we talk about command and control is the army that first comes to mind as an example right uh, so when you talk about an organization like this which is uh, built on principles of command and control and uh, if you juxtapose it with you know these kind of um new age private companies where say just just imagine an e-commerce company where you know you have ordered something from somewhere and you're talking to a customer support executive now that customer support executive needs to be empowered to take some calls when you know that person is with you uh, o- over a phone call and you say i you know i didn't get this uh, whatever i've ordered for properly or, or whatever that person needs to take some run time calls right can't go back to you know his or her bosses or, or something like that that's where these companies are looking for agility uh, so how do you compare this command and control structure with you know trying to be agile and i'm sure uh, you know the army also needs to be super agile so how do you you know manage this command and control versus agility 
Well, again, it's a brilliant question and I can give uh, examples from my personal experience, especially this operation where I was uh, awarded the Shorty Chakra. Uh, it's very important to give a lot of power to the junior leader uh, because uh, situations on ground keep changing. And here we are talking about life and death. And if you do not empower your junior leaders, like how they empowered me to take decisions, uh, we spotted the militants at about uh, 4.30 in the morning. But it was I who took the decision, saying that uh, because I saw the conditions on ground, uh, we were tired, we, we had not had food for more than 24 hours. And that's when I decided that it's uh, because I knew the terrain very well, because we had trained much earlier uh, for about three odd months. We knew every... Uh, valley, every ridge, uh, we knew every tree actually in our area. So we knew where the militants might go or where would they go. And we had confidence in our training. And that's where I, I took a decision that uh, let's wait till daybreak, which was about 6, 6.30, before we even start pursuing them. Because uh, for me, I knew that I was confident of my training. I was confident of my uh, terrain. And that's how I took the decision on ground. Whereas uh, the teaching would have uh, taught me that moment you uh, have a, a, you know, an, an experience of contact, we should not leave contact and pursue them. Uh, uh, but I took the decision on ground giving uh, whatever the situation was. And similarly, when the contact happened, when the terrorists started firing at us, we were split into three uh, different groups because we tried to encircle them so that they couldn't escape. And uh, I, I left the uh, fire control to the uh, junior leaders who were under, under me. There was a junior commissioned officer. There were a couple of non-commissioned officers. The rest were soldiers. But I left the fire control to them. And uh, 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 based on my uh, uh, ability to assess what their strengths were and also how they're trained, because we are trained together, uh, I left the decisions to them. And that's how it worked out. And uh, this is what we follow in the army that as much of centralization that we do, we like to decentralize such things because the man on ground knows what's best. And uh, we always say that, you know, you should know your arc of fire, uh, your arc of fire, which is the left edge and the right edge. You are the boss. You know who comes in your arc of fire. Somebody sitting in Delhi might not like to dictate what is your arc of fire. And uh, we leave it to that rifleman, that soldier, uh, to know that uh, he can take the decision and we will stand by the decision. Not all times it will come out right, but the more and more times that you empower him, he feel confident he will be able to take the decision when he knows that somebody is there to back him up. Right, right. Yeah. And, and how do you, you know, train for this kind of decision making? Okay, so, so uh, it, it's a kind of a cycle. The more decisions you take, uh, the better you'll get at, uh, you know, getting a success rate higher, you know. Uh, I, I mean, like to draw a parallel, not from the uh, armed forces field, but uh, someone uh, from the sports field, uh, a friend of mine uh, who led the India, uh, MS Dhoni, uh, he always talks about this, that uh, you have to take a lot of decisions because he's also someone who takes a lot of decisions in the field. And he says, the more and more you take decisions, the percentage of the correct decisions will increase over time. And uh, this is what I believed in. This is what the armed forces also believes in that take a decision. It's better to take a decision rather than take no decision at all. And as you, uh, more and more your decisions you take, your percentage will go up and your, uh, you know, the wrong decisions will come down. And I've, I've seen it in my personal life as well as in my professional life. I always take decisions and it's better to give a quick decision and uh, more often it comes out right. 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 Yeah. And, and you know, a, a critical uh, 
component of decision making would be information right uh, and especially in an organization like the army and nowadays you know the way uh, these private organizations are also uh, you know structured there are so many layers so how does the flow of information work such that you know there's no transmission loss between what the jawan knows on the you know on the border and what the general knows in in delhi and where they are taking such strategic decisions and, and how do you distinguish between the strategic part of a decision making and the tactical decision making a good question again you know uh, the soldier we believe in something called need to know basis you know need to know is very very important uh, i need not know how I, how i'm going to solve the kashmir issue the soldier need not know how is he going to solve the kashmir issue he need he needs to know what is arc of fire is and what does he need to know if somebody who uh, transgressed that arc of fire you know or uh, let's say if he if he is in a uh, in a line of control or an international uh, border he needs to know what are is like we say in hindi daina had and baya had you know and uh, that is very important for him so we only give information what is relevant that's very very important and uh, not everybody needs to look at the bigger picture you just need to look at what is your speciality and if every block just concentrates on their speciality i'm sure the bigger picture will automatically come uh, you don't try and solve a jigsaw puzzle by you know trying to put all the pieces simultaneously together you just concentrate on that corner piece and see where it fits and uh, you feel that you are the corner piece and there will be one piece which will uh, complete the jigsaw puzzle so it's very essential and this is what we follow in the armed forces and that's what i i have followed in my uh, personal and professional life is uh, uh, be a specialist in what you are tasked to you know that's very very important and that's how uh, the soldier on ground uh, in fact in, in the operation uh, again to bring back the uh, the operation that uh, one had participated uh the the commanding officer who was sitting far away from me uh knew the bigger picture on where were they coming from maybe the numbers what are the kind of information uh, that was shared but all he uh, shared with me was that there are uh, terrorists who are coming uh, they would pass through your area of responsibility and i i i would think that they were uh, non uh, resident terrorists that they were foreign terrorists and uh, uh, this is the troops that you have and we'll have to uh, you know stop them or eliminate them if necessary this is the kind of information uh, so i had some kind of information in terms of terrain the morale of the troops what are the state of readiness and then when we assessed it uh, and we made sure that uh, different ambushes go to different places but then later when we did the uh, uh, the analysis of the operation uh i came to know that the commanding officer had much more information you know that uh, how how earlier they had moved and uh, did they have an encounter earlier and things like that but he didn't share it with me he just told me that this is your area of responsibility and i don't want them to cross your area of responsibility and uh, that that was the uh, mandate that was given to me and i followed that so it's very essential need to know basis is very very essential and i think you should specialize in your own domain rather than you know putting your figures into many other things right right on on that note uh, you know sometimes you may want to have more information you know that this is you know something very critical for me to take uh, a decision but sometimes you just don't have that information not it's it's nothing to do with whether it's need to know or not you need to know that but you don't have that uh, information then it's it's a question of you know just taking a leap of faith 
so uh, again going back to your you know what you said earlier whether you still go with that mantra of taking a decision uh, which is better than not taking a decision or uh, do you then think probabilistically how do you you know make your trip wires when do you you know have a backup plan how do you do that oh well uh, see you can never have 100% uh, 100% is impossible to achieve uh, so how far can you get to that 100% is what is important you know uh, so always you will have information which is about 70% and then uh, you will have to build on that information to try and get it to 100% Uh, but you will never be able to get 100%. If you keep thinking about that missing 3%, you're going to miss out on the 97% information that you've got. So I would always rely on the 97% information that I have and take the decision rather than worry of that 3% information that I don't have. Uh, again in the uh, operations that I've taken uh taken part in, uh many of the times we don't know the strength of the uh enemy we don't know uh, how long he's been uh, traversing that area in this particular operation we had no clue whether they were 6 whether they were 10 whether they were 13 uh, but we we went on the information because if they had told me that there are 14 i wouldn't have gone with 11 uh, personnel you know uh, i would have uh, gone for a larger strength but then i wouldn't have covered uh, my complete uh, area of responsibility so uh, a kind of information was spread to me i uh, use my experience i i knew my terrain very well so if you have knowledge of your domain knowledge and and, and uh, also have a lot of confidence in your troops uh, in 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 a corporate sector confidence in uh, your skills confidence in your uh, you know human resources confidence in your systems uh, i think uh, even if there's, there's a missing information you'll be able to take uh, uh, better decisions and don't fret about the missing information concentrate on the information that you have uh, you will never ever be able to get 100% information and also the 97% information will also keep varying over time so that's very important that how you uh, you know change with the changing information and that again comes through uh, confidence in yourself knowing your skills knowing your systems and uh, practice 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 <laughs> yeah so um, you know the, let, let me uh, change tracks uh, slightly here but before that i'm going to ask you a quiz question oh and uh, you know the the fun part of these uh, the fun part of these quiz questions is that they are somehow related to you okay <laughs> okay and and to make things interesting we going to have something at stake so we have something called as a ctq compounds where we help uh, people develop a habit of uh, reading So for every question that you get right, we'll actually give you a prize, which will be a discount code on the CTU compounds, which you can give to uh, you know whoever you want. Good initiative. Yes. Okay. So the first question for you is: uh, Ex Union Minister Dr. Karan Singh is also a well-known poet. Mm-hmm. How is one of his songs connected with you? A song that he has written. How is it connected with you? Karan Singh uh, should be. Uh, I mean, he was a Dogra king, so uh, uh, maybe Dogras, uh, something. Uh, maybe the regimental song of the Dogras that was written by Dr. Karan Singh. Perfect answer. I I didn't expect you to miss this one, and and you've got it right. 
<laughs> well done. I think it uh, comes to choose to think. So I, I, I just chose to think on that line, you know, <laughs> and years of experience of quizzing too. <laughs> so yeah, your, your training helped you. Uh, like, like you say, you, uh, you, know, you sweat in peace so that you don't bleed in wartime, right? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what part of, you know, the training and the forging life, uh, as, as they say, plays the biggest role in contributing to that sense of kinship that people have. I mean, if I see two army people from NDA, completely different batches, maybe different generations, but they you know, you can see the bond between them. So how does how does that happen? So what, what leads to that kind of uh, sense of kinship? Oh, great. That's again uh, to the hardship in training, you know. Uh, I, I think that's what brings people together. Uh, even in, in a civilian, if I can put it in quotes, civilian life, I think you remember the hard times together much more uh, than, you know, the happy times and things like that. You know, when you, somebody's helped you, when you were down and out and somebody had come and helped you. So in NDA, is more of the hard times that we have. You know? uh, of the three years of training that we have in NDA, it's most of the times it's hard times. Either we are, you know, getting punished for some mistake that somebody else has done and then uh, so when we meet, even after 25 years, or I mean, we, this, we are celebrating our silver jubilee of our passing out of National Defense Academy this year. And I think uh, most of our conversation is about the hard times. Nobody talks about, no, you won this prize or you won that prize. Only we talk about the tough times that we had and how it, it was so difficult and how one helped each other. And I think that's what brings uh, the camaraderie. That's what strengthens the camaraderie. Uh, which is true in any field of life. Uh, I, I think you remember your hard times together. And because the armed forces training is such that uh, physically it's very, very tiring. Uh, they push you to the uh, limits of uh, your physical powers as well as your mental uh, and, and your resilience. Uh, they push you to your mental resilience saying that, no, would you give up on your uh, teammate? Uh, that's what they try and check. And uh, because of the training, we don't give up on our teammate. Uh, because uh, this training is what is going to be carried on into our armed forces. We would never like to leave uh, any of our comrades uh, in the battlefield. Uh, we would like to carry everyone back home, uh, whether dead or alive. Uh, so this is what is uh, important. So this again comes through a strong training. So they push you to the limits and that's where they test. Uh, and because of them pushing us to our limits, uh, we get much closer. And uh, uh, that's what happens you know, when you're when you're actually you know, having an adverse weather, when it's cold, actually you come together, you know, uh, you come together and uh, feel the warmth of each other. Uh, metamorphically, uh, uh, we're talking about it, that it, it's also like that in, in, uh, in difficult times you come together. And that's what carries uh, uh, throughout your life. Right, right. So, so any uh, personal routines or habits that, uh, you know, you have developed uh, I know even before uh, the army, you were in scouts, so you basically lived a life in uniform. Uh, but, you know, something that has come, that you know has come directly out of, you know, the army's influence in you, which you think, you know, people outside the army can also learn and, you know, adapt. It could be personal routines, discipline, sense of, uh, you know, honor, and anything that you think people can and should, you know, adopt. And, you know, it, it's, it's possible for civilians also to, you know, bring that into their lives? Oh, I would like to classify civilians and armed forces people. I'd just like to say humans. 
Uh, well, well, uh, NDA has taught me some amazing lessons. Uh, we had a, a senior of mine who taught me my life lesson, which I personally follow till date. And I, I always propagate to others, whether it's young adults, children, or even elders. Uh, this is one thing that he taught me. Time is, is, is something which is the only, it's the only resource uh, which you, if you've got a lot of money, you can't even buy it, you know. That's the only resource. So how you maximize time is how you can lead your life well. So one thing that he told me in NDA is get up five minutes early. You know, so if you get up at six o'clock, we can try it tomorrow. If you get up at six o'clock daily, try and get up at 5.55. At the end of the day, uh, you will be five minutes early everywhere. You know, uh, whether it's for breakfast. I mean, NDA breakfast is such a uh, important meal because you're coming to a, a physical uh, training and you get very less time. So if you're going to miss out on breakfast, you're going to have a very tough day, you know. But if you get up early, everything will be in place. At least you'll have a better breakfast and so on and so forth at the end of the day. And similarly, as a corollary, he says, if you get up five minutes late at the beginning of the day, you will be one hour late at the end of the day. You know, one thing will lead to the other. You'll forget something. You'll get punished. And then, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in a normal, I mean, in not a non-military life, maybe you'll forget your cell phone, you'll forget your mask in today's uh, uh, scenario, and then you'll go back. You wasted time, you know. Uh, so that's the whole thing. Time is the key resource. And this is something that I followed day in and day out. Five minutes early at the beginning of the day is five minutes early at the end of the day. Five minutes late at the beginning of the day, you're one hour late at the end of the day. So this is something that your uh, listeners can uh, try it out. Maybe try it out tomorrow and you will uh, definitely see uh, a marked improvement in how you manage your time. Right, right. In, in the uh, whole knowledge, uh, or rather in the literature of habits, this is uh, known as a keystone habit. You know, uh, so the word keystone actually comes from the world of architecture where, right. you know, there's this one piece on the top. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, one habit which can have uh, an extraordinary effect on the rest of your life. So this, this is clearly a keystone habit that, uh, you know, that you're talking about. definitely a keystone habit. In fact, even for this interaction that we are having, I was ready five minutes early, set it up and things like that, because at the moment I came to know we are having this interview and I'm sure uh, we will be able to wind it up accordingly too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I given the amount of uh, you know questions and topics that I have, I think we'll probably you know stretch it by half an hour. <laughs> Let's take it up. Yeah, right. So uh, another question on on you know more about the Indian Army. Um, so historically, a lot of innovations uh, have actually come from and best practices have come from you know use cases from the army, like the you know a lot of it from the American Army and uh, the European uh, army. Uh, how is it in the Indian army when it comes to adopting new practices? And you know, how are they managing to respond to the, to the need for change in, in you know, what is seen as a very regimented, sort of slow to change system. It is a behemoth, right? Uh, there are some practices that have been around for you know, 150 years, uh, but yet you need to adapt to uh, change, uh, you know, things are moving to drones and AI and whatnot uh, these days, right? So how, how is that, you know, marriage of the tradition versus, you know, the, the need to uh, adopt to new changes that are happening? How is that happening in, in the Indian Army? Oh, it's cliche, you know, the only thing that's permanent is change. <laughs> 
So uh, the army definitely uh, is always open to change, whether it's in the thought process, whether it's in uh, technology. Uh, we have a lot of innovation which goes on in the army and army, uh, 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 to put to bluntly, uh, we've got a lot of resources to carry out the innovation. Innovation requires a lot of resources in terms of manpower, in terms of expenditure and money, and you know, uh, sometimes space. Uh, in a space, I mean real estate, you know, uh, you might have all the great ideas, but you may not have the real estate to check out your drone. We've got all the real estate, you know. So uh, we've got all the resources. So Army actually encourages you uh, to innovate. We, in fact, have got a lot of awards uh, for innovation, uh, whether it's in, whether the DRDO has uh, brought out a lot of, uh, you know, uh, healthy eating habits, a lot of products. Uh, we, we get sometimes Idli in Siachen Glacier. We know how to pump uh, kerosene into Siachen and many other things. You know, uh, innovation is encouraged in the armed forces. Uh, in fact, at the uh, junior leaders level, we uh, encourage people to come up with new ideas. We have different forums for it. And then we dovetail it to the uh, Tartib. Tartib is the system that we have in the unit. You know, uh, Tartib is very important. Drill is very, very important in the armed forces because everybody cannot go in uh, different directions. So we call a drill discipline kabuniyada in Hindi, you know, which is like a drill is the uh, bedrock of discipline. So we have to uh, dovetail this kind of innovation or new ideas into the drill and then make that as the new drill. Uh, it's not that everybody follows a new idea and uh, technology is changing uh, uh, unimaginably, uh, but how to use that technology, put in the drill and then make that as a new drill. Uh, that is what we do in the armed forces. And I think that's what uh, saves lives uh, of people. Uh, because if we have the right drill, then the chances of making mistakes are less, you know. As simple as, uh, you know, making sure that your weapon is uh, uh, not loaded uh, when it's not supposed to be loaded, where you're supposed to place your finger. Uh, we have new weapon systems where, you know, it, uh, there could be accidents. Uh, we are importing a lot of weapons to so understand how the weapon functions, but we develop drills for everything. So you develop a drill when there's something new which has come out and then um, uh, very less chances that anything will grow. But Army is always open to innovation and uh, new ideas and we are always increased at all levels. In fact, every day we have something called a roll call where before everything finishes, we, we ask for uh, you know, any uh, ideas or any thoughts that uh, Jawans right up to uh, the chief of army staff, uh, uh, who's every day opens a forum, asks, uh, uh, you know, people for innovative ideas and things like that. Right, right. So any, any recommendations uh, for books and sources to learn life lessons from, uh, from the Indian army? I don't know books and this thing because we have people on ground. So maybe uh, join the territorial army if you're less than 42. Uh, if you're a young adult, uh, join the army, uh, navy and air force. It'll, it'll give you all the lessons, anything than a book. Uh, but yes, if there is something that comes to my mind, maybe I can share it with you. Uh, uh, the, nothing that comes right uh, on the top of my mind, uh, which I've read based on only the uh, armed forces or something like that, uh, because I've read bits and pieces from everywhere. Uh, but if something comes to my mind, I can share it with you later. Sure, sure. We'll, we'll add them to the show notes uh, later. So uh, before we move to the next uh, section, uh, another quiz question for you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what did Neil Armstrong do as an insurance policy 
in case things didn't go right in the Apollo 11 mission? Oh, well, it's an interesting question because it combines two of my passions. Uh, not only Neil Armstrong, the other two uh, right. explorers also. They knew that uh, this is not a mission that uh, might succeed because they were the first. And uh, so what they did was uh, they autographed a lot of these uh, first day covers and uh, distributed them. Uh, I don't know whether it was first day covers or just envelopes with stamps. And they gave it uh, as a, uh, to their family saying that, you know, just in case something happens, uh, this is going to be worth a lot and then you can uh, sell it. And uh, this was something which was unique and they thought about it. And Neil Armstrong is a sought after autograph uh, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the world of autographs because at some point of time, he stopped actually signing autographs. Right. Uh, and then, then he completely stopped signing autographs. So people who had his autographs, it became valuable. And I think it was a very innovative uh, uh, insurance policy. And I think I've got it right. Yes, you have. <laughs> Nothing is going wrong in this mission for you today. <laughs> so, you know, the, the other aspect of uh, Colonel Shankar is that, you know, you are an avid, no, sorry, avid is, is the wrong word to use. You're a super passionate collector of autographs of celebrity. So where did this, you know, passion come from? Uh, to tell the word in Hindi, you wanted to use kida, but you used passion. That's fine. Yes, <laughs> uh, as a young boy uh, growing up in the 80s, I think um, with very less uh, exposure to different forms of entertainment that exist today, one was groomed to have hobbies, you know. So one started off with uh, the most inexpensive and the most interesting hobby of collecting stamps. It was available, you used to get uh, uh, posts, you should get letters from uh, relatives and friends. You, uh, you, you could, uh, you know, exchange letters with your pen pals across the world uh, and then collect the stamps and then discover the wonderful hobby of philately. And that's how I started. And uh, I, I started with philately as a hobby of collecting stamps as a young boy. And then I realized that uh, uh, there is another hobby which is uh, much more uh, interesting and much more personal than philately and which was uh, collecting autographs. And we were young adults or very young uh, boys when India won the World Cup in 1983, you know, and these were heroes. Uh, sports, of course, is, is always uh, something for a young boy to look up to and Kapil uh, and, uh, and his team has achieved this. And so we got, I got an opportunity uh, to meet a couple of players uh, uh, then and there, and then use an autograph book to take autographs. And then the World Cup came to India in 1987. Uh, that was a turning point. I could meet a lot of cricketers and started taking autographs. And then I realized this was a, a interesting um, aspect that I'm having a piece of that celebrity with me, you know. Uh, so this uh, intrigued me, saying that I'm holding a part of history in my hand, which uh, clearly says that uh, where the person was, what was his mood when he wrote that, I mean, when he signed that autograph, where was I and uh, uh, what was my economic condition because I could have taken it on a normal you know, piece of paper, I could have taken it on a memorabilia, I could have taken it on a picture. So it, it is part of history, uh, which uh, very few hobbies or very few things, uh, uh, you, know, uh, 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 you know, give you. Uh, even art might not give you that, you know. Uh, art will only tell you who the painter was, what was his mood, but then it doesn't tell you, uh, I mean, here in autograph, you actually can put out your mood. You can just say, uh, you know, with best wishes or it's, it's a great day and then sign. You have a dated autograph. 
art maybe uh, you don't maybe you don't date my side and artwork so i found this hobby of collecting autographs to encompass something which uh, will be a, a slice of history and i could preserve this part of history which no other hobby no other hobby offers you know and that's what intrigued me i started off collecting on scraps of paper on autograph books and then uh, slowly and slowly started uh, specializing in trying to take it on photographs on memorabilia on artworks i i i got especially commission artworks i got it signed by them and uh, i i still continue to do it uh, more than 30 plus years i've been following this hobby and every day is, is is a great discovery for me right right and and like i mentioned uh, at the start of this conversation there are multiple hobbies uh, for you you know there's philately there is uh, magic there is autograph collecting so what do you think uh you know is the role of something like this of hobbies um you know in in the life of uh, a growing child slash young adult you know how important is it and what are the you know what are the ways in which it opens up uh, new worlds uh, and opportunities for uh, children and adults alike see hobbies are great places to gain knowledge you know and if you have knowledge i think uh, uh, it, it, it's the key for everything in life you know choose to think i think believes in that that if you think that you you will be able to do the you will get the knowledge so uh, all these hobbies teach you something whether it's organization whether it's planning whether it's uh, how to uh, you know do your financial planning your time planning uh, you have to do a lot of research uh, whatever hobby it is you know whether you're playing an instrument or reading books or uh, collecting something uh, this all this leads to knowledge and this knowledge will uh, come in handy to you both in your personal life and in your professional life and hobby actually opens up and like philatelic they say is the uh, king of hobbies and hobby of kings uh, statesmen used to collect uh, uh, stamps such a small piece of paper and a great uh, uh, you know ambassador of a country and this small piece of information will come in handy um, later in your life and uh, will also broaden your horizon to learn more and the more you learn uh, the more powerful you become so um, you know in, in fact uh, we had a venture capitalist on this show earlier and uh, you know he was talking about the kind of people uh, you know they uh, choose to invest in and uh, he said one of the things that they look at is whether a person has actually you know done something in you know in in an allied field uh has done something around hobbies has gone and organized a college fair or or something like that those are the kind of things that uh, they look for and and when you talked about you know all the skills that you learn as part of your hobbies including you know financial uh, planning that that immediately uh you know uh, struck struck a chord so uh, and and you know i have been reading some of these ambushes as as you call it uh you know that that you do on these uh, celebrities where uh, you know you literally stalk them and go for the kill at the right time so uh you know i i've seen all kinds of uh skills and qualities here right from what you call as social engineering skills to influencing skills to selling uh, highly creative uh, ways in which you you get these autographs so can you talk about any fun anecdotes that that you remember from this uh you know this this hobby of yours so well, this hobby is every encounter uh, of of these celebrities in getting their autographs is a story by itself 
and uh, it was funny that you put uh, you use the word ambush you know which is a very military term and i consider this as an operation you know uh, getting these autographs as an operation and it predates my military career uh, i've been ambushing much before so i don't know whether my hobby helped my uh, my arm forces career or the arm forces career has helped my hobby but it's 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 been dovetail and yeah i've got a lot of stories and i i think uh, one of the stories of where i i because all this requires a lot of planning you know and uh, you need to know how to approach a celebrity how to be unique uh, how to achieve your aim which is to get the autograph you know it, it's only in today's world that you also want a photograph or a selfie and uh, but it's the moment that it of, of getting the autograph which is very really important so one of the things that comes right into my mind is uh, my uh, I, i came to know that uh, pele was coming to india after a very long time he had come the, sometime in late 70s to india he had come to calcutta and uh, he was again coming to calcutta and uh, so i was uh, posted somewhere in the eastern sector of india so i said okay this is a great opportunity and um, uh, pele is i think one of the few sportsmen uh, across uh, where people would recognize across the world and uh, and he was someone everybody idolizes and getting his autograph would have been would be a great idea so i knew it's going to be difficult uh, because pele uh, coming to india is one thing but pele coming to calcutta is another thing you know uh, coming to calcutta which is like football crazy and uh, i think even gods can pass by but not pele you know uh, so so i had to come up with a lot of strategy i had to do a lot of planning i had very less time so i said the way to uh, maybe go about is to uh, choose the a spot you know in an ambush you have to choose your spot where where do you think your target would come that's a very very important part of planning so i knew uh, the moment he steps out of the airport it's going to be very very difficult you know uh, after that uh, i wouldn't have much control in an airport it would be a little uh, uh, you know secure environment and to get access to the airport is going to be very difficult given the security systems and things like that the only way i could uh, have done that was you know uh, use uh, uh, my connections as well as try and be another uh, also you have to be not uh, sticking out like a sore thumb you know you have to blend into the uh, environment and things like that and uh, there would be many like me who would also try and do this that they would also know that this is the place airport is a great place that you can uh, uh, maybe uh, try and get the autograph but then i have to be one more step ahead uh the other step that i thought ahead would be was uh, maybe to uh, try and get his attention and to get his attention in this sea of uh, uh, fan friends even the airport staff would be frenzy to see pele um so i had to come up with something so i said okay maybe uh, one of the key things uh, which i've gained from my professional experience in the armed forces is that uh, language is a very very important part of your cultural intelligence you know Uh, cultural intelligence is very very important and in cultural intelligence language is very very important so i said if i have to be unique then i have to learn a little bit of uh, portuguese uh, that's the language that uh, pele would uh, speak and uh, a portuguese speaker in calcutta is going to be very rare you know uh, that's going to be rare uh, so i said okay that's the next step so i learned a uh, little phrases in portuguese but then one had to use the right phrases at the right time modulate your voice be there at the right place and then also i want an autograph on uh, something which is unique because if i'm going to shout out to him and get his attention but i don't have anything i'm going to just show a piece of paper 
uh, then I'm going to be just like another billion or not uh, uh, seekers he would have uh, encountered in his life. Uh, so I had to be unique. So I had got an artwork commission. It was just not an artwork. It was a wonderful caricature where I had got uh, one, of, one of India's top caricature artists to uh, get a caricature done. And it was a caricature of uh, Pele holding a football. And uh, on that, um, uh, I also had done, uh, that's where knowledge comes in. I had also done research that uh, Pele's birthday was coming up. So, uh, so one had to also incorporate that and put that on the caricature. And it had to be, the size had to be large enough because Pele was about 70 plus. So he had to see that from a distance, understand that it is own caricature. And then uh, uh, just, uh, that's the 97%, the 3% uh, it was not in my hands. So I believed in my 97%, you know. I said, this is the information that I have. When is he coming, what it is, and uh, what are the skills that I have? I had a lot of faith in my skills. And sure enough, Pele didn't come walking. He was, uh, you know, uh, he was uh, escorted in a uh, golf cart within the airport, which normally doesn't happen. And uh, he was taken in, before he was taken to the waiting lounge, which was the VIP lounge, which again, people don't do. Generally, they get out of the airport quickly so that there is hardly any time. Uh, so I uh, shouted out to him in Portuguese. And uh, he just that microsecond when he turned his head, because somebody uh, shouting out to him in Portuguese uh, in uh, Calcutta airport, definitely uh, got his attention. And the moment he got his attention, I uh, showed the caricature, which was large enough for him to see. And uh, when he saw that, and the moment he got down, it was Pele who initiated and said that, I would like to meet my friend from Port who could speak Portuguese, you know. Uh, then it was much easier. Uh, people uh, looked for me and said, who are you, who are you, and how do you know Pele? I said, I don't know Pele, Pele knows me, you know. <laughs> he knows me as someone who speaks Portuguese. And after that, it was a breeze. I could take an autograph, not only an autograph, he personalized it for me. Uh, he wanted a picture with me and, you know, and uh, that was a great moment. And uh, moments like this have been uh, many. I've had encounters with Magnus Carlsen when he came to India. Uh, these are from the sports field, but I've had great encounters with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, with heads of states, uh, with also normal celebrities. Uh, but one has to be prepared. One has to plan well. Uh, one has to do a lot of contingency planning, which is also very, very important. Contingency planning is very important. This, if I had not uh, ambushed, ambushed, if I would say, Pele on that day, I had also backup plans. You know, I'd learned the happy birthday song in Portuguese. I'd got a young girl to accompany me to, you know, uh, put a little bit of sentiment and things like that. But uh, uh, first base, I struck. Uh, <laughs> And uh, after that, uh, the four or five days in Pele, two, three times I had encounter. I just didn't take autographs. Uh, it was Pele who recognized me in the other events. And he said, oh, he's my friend. And uh, that uh, put me into the other events later in my life in Calcutta, where people know, oh, he's the, he the Pele's friend, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I think, you know, the... Great experience for me. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, we can see the whole meticulous planning that has gone into this uh, ambush. And, uh, you know, there was, there was no other way, there was no other option for Pele but to sign that autograph for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the aim of the ambush, you know, to make sure that with minimal resources, uh, you actually have the maximum this thing and achieve the aim. 
and I think I achieved the aim and uh, I think the armed forces career has taught me how to lay ambushes and make sure that I come out successfully with uh, no casualties. Correct. With no casualties. I was going to add that. <laughs> so, and, you know, I, if, if I were to just ask you to put a number of, you know, the autographs that you have, how many thousands would that be? Well, numbers is about 8,000 plus, uh, the last time I recorded it, uh, but it's not about numbers. It's about right. the autographs, it's about the experience it is. I mean, I have collected so many of them, but I, I think uh, uh, one of the greatest autograph moments that I have is, uh, is something very unique, you know. Uh, it, it's not of uh, some world celebrity, of course he's a world celebrity, but uh, of how I got uh, President Kalam's autograph, you know. Uh, that, that was uh, that's a very cherished memory. I can I can barter that for the other seven thousand nine hundred ninety nine autographs. It's because of the experience and the memory that I have with the autograph. You know? Right, and and that was when you were still serving, right? Oh yeah, that that's an interesting uh, story. If you have time, I can share that. Uh, of one course, time. please. Uh, so this is sometime in two thousand and three, and I was a young captain at that time. I had gone to Delhi for an interview. Uh, to, for a foreign mission, I was called for an interview to Delhi, and these interviews take place in South Block. And by the time the interview finished, it was at about 5.30 in the evening, and I was in my uniform and driving a civilian car. And when I was heading back to my uh, the place where I was staying, uh, just a wild thought struck me that uh, why not go to the Rashtrapati Bhavan, because it, it, it comes on the way, you know, from South Block is just behind and um, uh, to meet the Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces, just a wild thought. And oh, since the uniform, I thought maybe I'll have access. Uh, uh, I realized it was not so easy uh, because the Rashtrapati Bhavan has got layers of security. And the first layer of security itself stopped me and said, who are you? And uh, then of course he checked my credentials and I told him that I'm a serving army officer. I was in uniform. Uh, he was satisfied with the answer, but that's the really farthest security, you know? And one didn't know how it worked and things like that. But I just took a chance saying that, you know, I want to meet the president of India. So maybe he thought that I had an appointment or something and the president has called me. So he was the last layer of security. And there were much more layers. So I, I, I went through about a couple of layers of security before uh, they, are, they actually asked me, who are you and what do you want? And uh, so I told them that I want to meet the president of India, the Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces. And I'm a Captain Shankar from the army. Uh, they say that's great, Captain, but uh, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> the President of India has got, uh, you know, it, it's all only by appointment. There's a lot of security issues. And I said, if that's the thing that maybe I could speak to the aide-de camp, you know, the ADC who's with the Rashtrapati. And um, I knew who the ADC was, but I didn't know him very, very personally, but I knew who he was. And I called him up and I said, this is, uh, I want to meet the Rashtrapati. He said, you must be crazy, you know, uh, because he also knows what a service officer is. And he was also nearly of the same rank. But he said, you know, since you have made all these efforts, uh, you can meet me. You know, I can show you around Rashtrapati Bhavan. But that also is not possible now because uh, the Rashtrapati is sitting in his office. It was about 6.30 or something at that time. And uh, you continue to wait uh, in the reception. Yeah, we, we made sure that I, I was sitting in the reception. And uh, I just kept waiting that these all pre-cell phone days. So I waited for about 45 minutes, uh, didn't have any response. And again, I called him up and I asked him, uh, what's the status? He said, I'm sorry, but the Rashtrapati is still sitting in the uh, office and he should leave any moment. This is the general time that he leaves. The moment he leaves, I'm free. Uh, so we will initiate a process of making a visitor's pass for you till then, you know. 
So he spoke to some people. They were making the visitors pass, and uh, uh, he said, "Okay, you go to a particular place in the Rashtrapati Bhavan, and I'll come and meet you there." So I was escorted to that place, and I had to pass that ADC's office to go to that place uh, where I was supposed to be, uh, you know, waiting for him. And just as I was going, he asked me, "Just sit in my office because the Rashtrapati just want to leave now. It just take about thirty seconds. I'll just see him off and then come." You know. So I was waiting in his office, and uh, the ADC was called by the Rashtrapati. Just maybe that was the drill before he leaves. And within about thirty seconds, somebody came running to me and said, "The Rashtrapati wants to see you." And I was like, you know, uh, taken aback. And apparently, the ADC, as uh, in the passing, made a remark that yes, uh, there's a crazy army officer who wants to see you. And the Rashtrapati said, "Yes, why not?" <laughs> Uh, so i was ushered into uh, the rashtrapati's office uh, where very few people go into the rashtrapati's office because they have designated areas where he meets visitors and um, as a, a young captain i saluted my uh, supreme commander of the armed forces made me sit down the adc was standing only it's the adc me and uh, the rashtrapati and the rashtrapati was uh, one of the greatest uh, and most loved uh, president of india dr apj abdul kalam and uh, we started our conversation he asked me where i was serving when i told him i was in the northeast he said he had visited that place and uh, then when he came to know about my background that i was from tamil nadu he switched over and started talking to me in tamil and he made me so at home and said that you are my guest and uh, you should go around the mughal gardens he was directing the adc saying that oh you take him around mughal gardens although it is not open for public then uh, uh, i still didn't uh, diverge from my aim you know my aim was to get his autograph uh, this is all great to see mughal gardens which i could see later also i want his autograph you know so i told him that you know and uh, i i had already had an experience with a uh, president because i was awarded the shorya chakra i had an experience of uh, meeting uh, the rashtrapati and getting the award from him and i told him that you know i've met uh, uh, president narayanan earlier and i've come to the rashtrapati bhavan uh, to get the award but this was a surreal experience but still i want your autograph you know <laughs> that that's what i want he said you know i i sign only autographs for children but uh, you have made a lot of efforts i will sign an autograph for you and he asked the adc um, to get us card he had made a card uh, to sign autographs for children and he got me the card it uh, generally has got printed autographs which he just distributes you know but this one just had the card with a picture of uh, his excellency the rashtrapati and a quote and the quote was so uh, uh, you know uh, relevant and relevant to the interaction that we are having today uh, he asked me to read aloud like a child you know like it, that's what he typically does you know he says repeat after me and he says oh, read it aloud you know so the quote said um, uh, learning gives creativity uh, creativity leads to thinking thinking gives you knowledge and knowledge makes you great or knowledge is power something like that and he asked me to read it loudly and then uh, he signed it uh, saying that dear captain shankar with best wishes uh, apj abdul kalam uh, the 23rd of march i think so uh, 2003 so uh, uh, as an autograph collector it's, uh, like i told you it's uh, autographs are a slice of history it clearly says that who is it is addressed to where was he uh, what date what was his mood and what and so i have a piece of history with me uh, which was lifelong you know uh, which uh, we are keepers of history as autograph collectors so that was my greatest moment and when i left the uh, the office i was asked to sign a register uh, where you have to put in your credentials whoever enters the 
Rashtrapati's office. Then I saw there were heads of states of other countries. And here I was signing Captain Shankar, uh, you know, Agartala. And, and then I saw some Israeli prime minister or somebody's name written, just a couple of names ahead. I said, wow, here's a record that I'm going to maintain. And uh, so people ask me, what about the photograph? Uh, did you take a picture? And these are all, of course, pre-digital era. I think that that, the pre-cell phone era and all. I said, uh, the picture is in my mind. I, I, like, like how I've uh, in, I mean, I've narrated the story, it's as if I'm reliving the whole experience, you know. And of course, I've met uh, President Kalam much later also uh, as a former president, but uh, it was the greatest moment. And uh, these are the moments that I cherish uh, being an autograph collector. Many more of there, out of the 8,000 autographs, maybe I'll have some 3,000 stories, but this is one thing that I cherish uh, throughout my life of getting the autograph of uh, the president of India. Yeah, and, and the people's president, and I think this is an example of why he was called the people's president as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And he was an amazing man, a great autograph uh, signer. Uh, he also came up with, uh, you know, funny things. Uh, he said, no, no, I will, he will print, give out printed autographs. He will sign just APJ, you know, to get more people. Uh, but that particular autograph, he had signed his complete name with address to me, with his wish, with the date. And, you know, uh, that's something special. And of course, he was a great man and uh, great thoughts and someone that I followed. And, uh, you know, I, I still continue to follow his uh, uh, values and his teachings. And I think uh, he was a great president. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and continuing on the whole, you know, uh, autograph uh, topic that, that we're talking about, uh, you've also brought out books of caricatures, you know, collectors cards for, you know, kids to go and become like you go and hound uh, cricketers uh, or, uh, you know, Formula One uh, drivers uh, as, as well. So a lot of these things that you've done have involved doing things that you are not really trained for. You know, I, I uh, remember you once telling me that you've now picked up, uh, you know, graphic design skills, which were I'm sure no way, you know, expected of you <laughs> in the Indian army. So, you know, did you uh, have any formal training and, you know, how did you go about, you know, picking up these kind of skills? Oh, well, uh, these, these are some things that I thought that uh, will add value to the autographs because what typically happens is children uh, take in scraps of paper or something and they, they maybe they will throw away the autograph without realizing that uh, they're holding actually a part of history, you know. So I came up with uh, certain collectibles which uh, people could take autographs, will encourage uh, children to take autographs. So uh, brought out books on the World Cup winners, 2011 Cricket World Cup winners, Formula One, on Chennai Super Kings, uh, and, and of course supported by uh, MS Dhoni, who was the captain of both the cricket team and Chennai Super Kings, who also believed in this idea that, you know, if he is giving an autograph, then people should, uh, you know, keep it. and, and like, like I'm able to uh, relate with the APJ Abdul Kalam's uh, autograph memory. I'm sure when they become older, they will be having something to show. And so if it's just going to be a scrap of paper, then people might throw it away. And in the process, uh, I realized that it's uh, uh, graphic designing, like what you said, or designing is what you said, is very important. And I, I uh, hit and trial is what I did. Um, the, the, the resources to learn are immense nowadays. Uh, it's how you tap and uh, spend your time correctly to learn. Uh, I, I think the internet has opened up uh, a lot of avenues. Uh, I, I, and the, the pandemic has taught us that, you know, you can learn a lot online 
uh, and and if you do a wide range of reading and seeing things, then you will come to know uh, uh, these skills. You know, so specifically for these graphic design, initially uh, my books were big, uh, which was unwieldy. Then I realized that it's better to have it small, so it's easy for the autograph collectors to go. The quality of paper, uh, how autographs work on glossy paper, how autographs work on non-glossy paper. Uh, there, you know, uh, how caricatures are a uh, little more uh, eye-captivating uh, than normal photographs, uh, how, uh, you know, small caricature cards uh, are, are uh, respected worldwide. Uh, you could exchange them and things like that. Uh, it should be easy, also inexpensive, uh, because as a young collector, maybe you won't have the money. Your parents might not be able to uh, give you so much of money that you would be able to buy a bat every time you want to get it somebody's side, you know. So uh, all this is surely through experience of collecting and uh, learning. Uh, I, I think uh, the resources are immense nowadays. You just need to know uh, where to look for. And if you uh, follow the right kind of people, I'm sure you'll get ideas. And then you get focused and learn a particular bit, you know. So I, I learned a lot of uh, designing software uh, skills. Uh, one thing that I used was InDesign. And uh, now you ask me to make a book, I can make a book in six hours. You know, but uh, initially it took me about six months to just compose it in, in a normal thing with so many mistakes and things like that. So uh, a time, like I told you, time is a, is a very important resource. So if you have the skills, then you will be able to save on time. So uh, I think the, to answer your question, I think the learning opportunities and the avenues are many. Uh, it's all available. You just need to look and, uh, and I think you can get the skills. Right, right. In fact, if you can uh, look carefully in the bookshelf behind me, you'll see a copy of uh, Groom, you'll see a copy of Stump, you'll see a copy of uh, How's That as well. So oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have the, uh, the, the pride of place. And uh, I don't know if you can see it. I also see your autograph book, which I have, which is the East of Kanchenzonga. So let's let's move to the next uh, you know next next question that I had. You are one of the you know foremost experts in India on Bhutan. So how did you go about building that expertise? And you know where did you start? How did you you know how do you keep yourself updated? Because it's not like you know you're just reading about uh, India in your school curriculum. It's not like that, right? It's a completely different country. It's a new country. Uh, yes, it was part of your line of work, but how do you go about becoming an expert on, on a country uh, you know, like this? What was the whole process of you know, doing that? Well, it started off as a professional assignment. Uh, I was selected to uh, go to Bhutan as part of the training team. The, the Indian Army trains the uh, Royal Bhutan Army. So it is part of my professional uh, assignment. And uh, like I mentioned to you, I would like to do things which are uh, complete. So I said, okay, this is just not a professional assignment for two years, I, I need to know about the country if I'm going to make an impact uh, on the work that I'm going to do or how, how I'm going to contribute. Uh, so the first thing first was to try and learn about the culture. Uh, again, the hobby comes in the first one of the first stamps uh, that I collected was of Bhutan because they used to produce these uh, unique stamps of 3D stamps and stamps on foil and things like that. So I had a little background of Bhutan as a philatelist. And uh, this is a great opportunity to go on ground. So I was posted to Bhutan. I was, uh, in fact, lucky to be in Thimphu, which is the capital of Bhutan. And the first thing that I did was to understand the culture, 
and to learn the language. I, I think that was a very, very important thing like I brought up earlier. Language is a very, very important part of uh, cultural intelligence. When I say language, one need not be a, a, you know, a degree holder or, or, or somebody who's got a formal training in any language. What you need to know is conversational uh, language. You know, that's very important. You should be able to start a conversation and, and express interest that you connect with the other person in the language that they know. Uh, this is what I started off, but then I, I got much deeper into their study and uh, which eventually resulted in uh, uh, helping uh, come out with the first Hindi-English Zonka dictionary because I found that a lot of our Indian Army personnel go to Bhutan, especially the soldiers, uh, who I thought if they have a dictionary where they could uh, you know, relate to the Hindi word uh, and the Zonka word, they would also be able to make um, a certain uh, difference in the uh, Indo-Bhutan friendship. It's not a French Indo-Bhutan friendship we, we, when we talk. It's not about, you know, the Prime Minister and the King of Bhutan. It's at every level, you know. It's people-to-people -people contact, uh, which has helped Bhutan and India come much, much closer, you know. So uh, that's when I realized that it's so important. Then uh, uh, my tenure was only about two, two and a half years. Uh, it was two years, got extended because of His Majesty's coronation and also the uh, historic times that I was in because we saw abdication of his majesty, the fourth king. Uh, we saw the first uh, elections. Bhutan became from democracy to, uh, from a monarchy to democracy. We saw the coronation of his majesty, the fifth king. So I got an uh, extended tenure of uh, two and a half years. Uh, and uh, since I was part of, again, history, I was a witness to history. Uh, I said, uh, it will be unfair that uh, I leave all this knowledge that I've gained in Bhutan uh, and so I have to build on those skills and contribute much more to the Indo-Bhutan friendship and uh, the, uh, the, the cooperation between the two armies. And that's when I started to, you know, uh, gain my knowledge, uh, knowledge, one that is available open source uh, through books or through media and things of like that, but also through the interactions that and the friendships that I had uh, built in Bhutan. Uh, I have some great friends in Bhutan still. And uh, these uh, friendships are not, uh, uh, of course, I have friends in the royalty too, but uh, it, it, the, it's not the, only the friends in the royalty or, or, or the people who are in uh, positions in the government or the armed forces, but also the common people of Bhutan, because they would be able to tell you what are they thinking about uh, uh, the world situation and things like that. So I, I try to build that and maintain that uh, uh, relationship. And language, like I told you, play, uh, plays an important role. And I, I, I tried to help them out. I was luckily I was posted in uh, Calcutta and as well as uh, other places in the east of India, where these Bhutanese used to come for medical reasons or for some kind of economic reasons. And I, I tried to help them out. Sometimes helping them out with arranging blood or getting them admission into a you know hospital and things like that, where I could use my local language and my network. And that's how you build a, a kind of a, a knowledge uh, base. And it's, it's not overnight. Uh, you need to uh, nurture it and believe it. And with no uh, uh, aims and, oh, this is what I'm going to achieve. It's nothing like that. You just have to have the aim clear that let's build uh, the Indo-Bhutan friendship uh, stronger. And that's what I've always believed in. And uh, of course, now the resources are much more. Bhutan has opened up. Uh, they are, they are, a lot of their citizens are into Twitter and Facebook and other social media. They've got more uh, newspapers. They, their uh, uh, TV channels are all open on the YouTube and things like that. And 
And of course, uh, now with other instant messaging apps, one is able to keep in touch and come to know. In fact, I come to, uh, I, I read the uh, Buddhist newspaper much before the Indian newspaper because uh, Bhutan is half an hour ahead of us and I get the newspaper by about 12 o'clock in uh, 11.30 India time, I get the newspaper. I read that first uh, or a previous day. And uh, sometimes I'm much more updated on Bhutan than what is happening in the city and my country. Right, so, right. Um, yeah. I think one needs to nurture this. It's not that um, uh, you try and specialize in the country. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on Bhutan, but I can say that I can contribute significantly if somebody uh, wants any knowledge about Indo-Bhutan friendship as well as uh, Bhutan as a country. Right, right. And, and uh, in the process of doing this, in, in those two years, you know, any tips or tricks that you used for knowledge management, like, you know, how you would take notes or was there something like a Pareto analysis done that, okay, if I know 20% of the language, I should be able to do, you know, 80% uh, of, of uh, you know, conversation, anything like that, that you did? Oh, of course, of course. Language is always like that, uh, whether it's Pele or it's Bhutan. You should know what are the languages, pleasantries, emergency, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, in fact, uh, I helped in, in this book that is placed here, uh, which is uh, Facts About Bhutan. This is one of the first books that I worked with another Bhutanese author. And uh, during the process of uh, writing the book, I discovered so many things. So how do I organize the language? Well, this is the advent, I mean, the start of the smartphone, uh, 2007 and eight. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, uh, for an outsider, all Bhutanese will look similar. Uh, you know, everybody would be called Doroji. <laughs> so, uh, so it's how important that you store the right information, have the keywords right in their contact itself uh, by saying that, okay, this person is, is from a particular department, everything in the contact field itself. So the moment he calls, I, I can immediately relate, okay, this is the person. And then uh, one could save their photographs as part of contact. Now it's become so uh, common, but in those days it was. So let's say I'm going into a briefing or going to meet someone. And uh, I, I know that I've saved this information. Let's say, let's say I was advising my general and he's going to meet. So I will give him the brief tips on how I've saved. And this was digitally saved because the smartphone had just arrived at that time and I could save that. And I used to make small notes and keep it just before going for any meeting and things like that. Uh, because everybody started looking similar and the names are all similar. So you need to have certain small, small qualities which I should write it down. And over the period of uh, years, I've built that up. And, you know, uh, I have uh, genealogical charts, uh, uh, you know, Bhutan uh, uh, marriage and divorce are very, very common. You should, you should know that this person was married to so-and-so. <laughs> uh, two wives before that was this person, you know, better so that you don't invite the wife and the girlfriend together. Quite <laughs> <laughs> so, made notes, uh, so genealogical charts were there, and you know, uh, many many small uh, this thing, and uh, see the newspaper and make sure that photographs are there and things like that. So yeah, knowledge uh, you can start off with just by saving their contacts with maximum information. Just not say that you know. Uh, ABC Bhutan, you know, so right. ABC Bhutan, uh, BBS, uh, uh, school, let's say they went to St. Joseph School, St. Joseph School, batch of 1997, try and put as much information in the contact itself. So you know, okay, so this person has gone to St. Joseph, so you can always talk about Darjeeling or his classmates. So if you know St. Joseph 1997 batch, then you talk about somebody from St. Joseph 1997 batch, 
uh, automatically the, the, uh, the link becomes. And uh, that's part of social engineering that I follow. <laughs> Fantastic, fantastic. So uh, before we move to the uh, last and final section, one more quiz question for you. <laughs> so the four concentric circles as designed in the form of Chakraview and are named after uh, protection, sacrifice, bravery and immortality. What are we talking about, which was designed by Yogesh Chandrahasan of VB Design Lab Chennai? Well, uh, you've touched something very, very close to my heart. And uh, this is, uh, it's a wonderful design. And in fact, I've met that architect who has uh, designed that. And uh, this is, uh, you're talking about the National War Memorial in uh, New Delhi. Perfect. The Tyak Chakra, the Amar Chakra, you know, the Raksha Chakra, and then the fourth one. Virta Chakra. Virta Chakra, you know. Yeah. And it's a wonderful uh, monument, and I would encourage your listeners, uh, to whoever goes to Delhi, to go and have a look at this wonderful monument, which has been very well designed. Uh, the, the design is uh, still evolving, and I'm sure uh, the present state is just about two years old, but it's been very well laid out, and it's got... Uh, names of uh, all those uh, uh, Indian Armed Forces personnel who have laid down their lives in operational circumstances. Their individual names are written in each of these blocks. And uh, then, of course, you have the, uh, the Amar Chakra, which is there right in the center where the eternal flame is uh, burning. And all these are casualties which have happened after 1947. Uh, so to answer your question, you're talking about the National War Memorial in New Delhi. <laughs> perfect, perfect uh, answer. So, so moving to this, uh, you know, final uh, section of ours. You said you retired in, you know, 2017. So you could have, you know, chosen to live, live a happily retired life, right? You know, following your hobbies, and you have enough hobbies to go after and and keep yourself busy and more. But you've taken up a, a very noble project. So uh, can you tell our listeners more about this project Sambandh uh, that, that you are now part of? Well, uh, well, maybe I wouldn't have retired at all. Uh, I would have continued in the armed forces and I had just about 20 years of service and I could have continued for another about uh, uh, 14 odd years in the army and maybe risen the ranks and things like that. Uh, but then I, I, I was uh, fortunate to get a calling in my life uh, because I was posted in the eastern sector of India. I was commanding a unit there. And that's where I realized that uh, the army, uh, apart from the operational casualties, has also a lot of casualties because of non-operational reasons. And one of my tasks as the commanding officer of the unit was to you know, document and mention about these uh, non-operational casualties, you know. And uh, these non-operational casualties are classified as physical casualties in the army. The people who die in operational circumstances are called battle casualties, like the one that I mentioned in the National War Memorial. The battle casualties names are uh, inscribed. You know, uh, We've got about 27,000 odd, odd uh, battle casualties from 1947 onwards. But then I realized there were uh, two or three dying every week or you know, every three or four days. And when I started doing a little bit of research, I found that uh, the Indian Army loses 1,500 every year. And uh, this was a large number. And it intrigued me because I also was close to an airport. And uh, I used to facilitate uh, uh, the, 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 the movement of the mortal remains and also receive the next of kin, maybe their spouse or parents or brothers. 
and understood that uh, there's a huge gap in uh, how they perceive the armed forces and uh, you know uh, there, there was a gap and when i started doing a little bit of research on uh, those uh, families which have lost their uh, you know their loved ones in such circumstances that's the non operational the physical casualties uh, which is basically a four reasons uh, either because of medical conditions or accidents or suicides or fratricides uh then i realized that uh, there needs to be a way to connect with them you know because over a period of time their connect with the armed forces was lost and uh, then i took a conscious decision of uh, uh, taking premature retirement from the army so people uh, initially discouraged me saying that oh i've got a career ahead of me it, it, it would uh, give me a, a promotions ranks and things like that Uh, but then i realized that um, uh, being in the army and trying to do something like this would be very difficult because my primary aim would have been uh, to serve the country in whichever appointment i was and for this i would require a lot of time i would require a lot of uh, independence and movement and uh, so i said okay let me retire uh, let me prematurely retire and uh, financially i had to take a decision because uh, um one would just get pension uh, luckily i would have got pension because i had put in 20 years of service uh but then i had a little advantages of being single so you know uh, with the pension i could survive and uh, also i had uh, uh, i had not too many expenditures so i said okay uh, maybe i will have to sustain myself and uh, do this project uh, without being uh, employed in any commercial firm and uh, so i answered the calling and that's the reason why i retired from the armed forces and it's not the other way around that i retired from the armed forces and started project samman uh, because of project samman i retired from the armed forces and this project is basically to connect with the next of kin of the physical casualties of the indian army physical casualties are indian army personnel who while in service die because of non operational circumstances which are the four reasons i told you which is medical conditions accidents suicides and fratricide and the indian army loses 1500 of them each year so the next of kin could be spouse and children as well as their parents and uh, the aim is to establish a connect with them because uh, initially the connect is very strong when the man uh, when the soldier dies the whole organization is uh, you know with them help them out but as the time progresses uh, the connect is lost because of various social reasons financial reasons emotional reasons and uh, because the connect is lost they have, they do not know that uh, there are many uh, uh, you know schemes entitlements grants which are applicable to them and uh, they are unaware of it and uh, because of which uh, i am trying to help them establish the connect so that uh, they can feel again proud that their uh, loved one uh, served in such a great organization for the indian army so so can you you know give me some examples of what this connect is and you know how how you have helped this uh, next of kin okay uh, so initially uh, the problem is to find out where they are you know uh, typically the army is every ever like your brenton it's all over information you know um, information that is there is uh, sometimes incorrect sometimes incomplete and definitely not current you know so my first challenge was to get uh, the data to be correct complete and project samman to make it current you know uh, so this was the challenge so it took me nearly about a year year and a half to travel across india 
to talk to a lot of armed forces authorities to try and get this data organized in such a way to make it correct, complete, and current. Uh, correct and complete, I could manage in, in certain ways. Correct, I got got. Complete, still, I've not been able to do it. But uh, most important is to make it current. To make it current, one has to travel across, meet these uh, uh, next of kin. And that's when I realized that most of the data is not current because of the, uh, the various financial, economic, and social reasons. What typically happens is when the soldier dies, the spouse and the children typically goes to the in-laws place. Uh, this is the typical Indian setting. Uh, socially, this is what is acceptable. And the widow and the children go to the in-laws place because at least there they would get out of the three basic needs of roti, kapra, and makan. They would at least get the roti and makan, you know. And, and of course, they'll get a meager pension, uh, which is about from 9,000 to about 20,000 rupees. Uh, so which is very difficult for uh, the uh, next of kin to survive uh, independently. And also, uh, once she goes to the village setting in the in-laws place, she realizes that uh, uh, the quality of education for the children is uh, definitely uh, marked down because the children earlier in, in uh, when the man was serving, when the soldier was serving, uh, would have gone to a good army school or a central school. And now they would have to go to a government village school because they wouldn't be able to afford a private school because of the less pension. Uh, she realizes the quality of the education is really uh, affected in two years. And also there are a lot of uh, other uh, social and uh, financial reasons also, which uh, uh, forces the next of kin to move out from the in-laws place. Uh, she says, okay, for a better uh, life for herself as well as for the children, she moves out to a better place, uh, mainly with education in uh, the uh, back of the mind. And the army, unfortunately, still has got the data of when the man died, which is uh, the in-laws place. So there is no way that this get data can get updated or made current till the time the next of kin takes some efforts because many a time she wants to break this connect for various reasons, you know, for various reasons. Uh, many of them are social reasons uh, because of uh, the interaction with their in-laws, interaction with the immediate society, how widows are treated uh, in, in a rural environment, not in rural, I, I think in all environment. So uh, because of which this uh, connect is lost, and I uh, try and go out and find out where these next of kin are and try and establish this connect. And over these years, I have uh, traveled across India. Uh, so many of them, I have traveled to uh, Jammu Kashmir is one of the places where um, I have uh, uh, established a lot of people, Jammu Kashmir, Himachal, down south. Uh, in one of my visits, uh, when I had gone to a place called Sundarbani, uh, I, what I also do is also build awareness that these next of kin of these physical casualties are uh, the, the most neglected, you know, uh, because the army has got a lot of schemes. Unfortunately, the focus uh, is elsewhere. So I also try and uh, talk to the armed forces authorities to bring out the plight. In, in one such visit, I had gone to a place called Sundarbani, which is there in uh, Jammu Kashmir, uh, close to Rajauri, Punch and all, if you would know that geography there. And I met this lady who was hardly about a kilometer away from the army cantonment. And uh, I came to know uh, that that was not the address that uh, was uh, what uh, the army authorities had. Uh, but I had caught out from someone that, yeah, she lives somewhere here. 
And when I met her, she said that she had lost her husband just two years into marriage. And the husband was a young soldier and uh, they already had a child, a girl child, who was just one year old when the soldier died because of some medical reasons. And uh, when I met the mother and the daughter who had just about 15 minutes to spare for me because they were rushing to school, uh, I, when I interacted, she said that she was a teacher and she had built her skills uh, after the soldier had died and made sure that the child also goes to a good school, private school. And, uh, and when I met the child, she was in ninth grade and I asked her what her uh, aspirations were, what her ambitions were and whether she was in reciprocity scholarship, which she said uh, she was not in reciprocity because she was not aware. And uh, the first thing first, I helped her fill up the forms, but more important that I asked, when I asked her what her aspirations was, she said uh, she wants to be a cardiologist. I was really taken aback uh, in a small place in uh, Sundarbani. Here is a young child, a girl child, who's talking about uh, being a cardiologist. And I was really impressed. And when I came back um, uh, to, uh, to my home state, I, I tried to put it up in my social media and, and then tried to reach out to my friends saying that this is what, uh, this is what Project Samman is all about. If I just, you know, corresponded with them on email or on telephone, maybe I would have just filled up the scholarship form for them and, you know, given those 40,000 rupees. But since I met them, I, I could make out that there was a confidence in that young girl uh, in such a small place and her ambition was very clear. And uh, sure enough, a lot of my friends and family said that how they would like to support. And uh, uh, yes, uh, we realized the potential and sure enough, Next year, when she appeared for our 10th standard exams, which she was in the board exam, she scored 484 out of 500. You know, that, that's a story that uh, I always tell people that, you know, if you've got the, uh, the jazba or, the, or, the, the, or the, the, the fire in your belly, you will be able to do it in spite of the circumstances, you know, no father, single parent, uh, financially very, uh, you know, not well to do. And today, I'm proud to say that uh, you know, my friends uh, advised me that being in Sundarbani is going to be very difficult for her to prepare for her medical exam. You have to go step by step. She has to clear neat and things like that. So it's better that she moves to a little better place where she can get some coaching. So today, uh, we have helped her move to Jammu, uh, which is a bigger place where she's undergoing coaching. She's staying in a hostel. Her mother is working in a school in Jammu, uh, staying again single. And uh, my friends and family are supporting me uh, financially. Some people are supporting me. Some people are advising her uh, in her preparation to become a doctor. Uh, somebody had gifted a laptop and things like that. But it's not about the money or the financial aspect, but it's because of the connect, we will be able to uh, make sure that this uh, kid uh, you know, achieves her aim. And you have to build the right environment for her. And this could only happen because of some bandar trying to reach out. And uh, this is one of the thousands of stories, like my autograph stories. Each, each interaction is, is, is a story by itself. And uh, only if you establish the connect, would you be able to come to know what the current situation is. And that's what Project Samman is, uh, to put it simply, is to connect. Right, right. Fantastic. That, that is a great, uh, great story. And we really wish the best uh, for her and uh, for you as well in, in this uh, project. So, you know, with this project, Sambar, um, did you have to learn anything new, any new skills that you had to learn? I'm, I'm just guessing, but did you have to, you know, learn about databases and, you know, how do you manage all this data? Oh, database is the easiest. <laughs> learn the technology is easiest but what the greatest learning is my social skills you know it's very very difficult to talk to a widow 
uh, how I interact with the widow, um, how do I approach the subject? You know, every time you you can't ask, how did your husband die? You know, you know the husband might have died because of suicide. You you again uh, get pulling her back into the trauma. Uh, I've just learned it through sheer experience. It's difficult for a man to talk to a woman in a rural setting. You know, uh, most of these widows are young widows, age group from 22 to 35. That's the maximum. You know, talking to a young widow. Very difficult, especially when you're going to a rural setting, you're a, you're a single man going there. It's difficult when you're you know, looking out for a particular, when you've got data of a particular widow and going there, whom do you take along? How do you approach a subject? What are the language you need to speak to? Uh, I am not the official authority. I'm just a person who's trying to do some philanthropic activity uh, to try and convince what is my uh, aim for the whole thing. Uh, suspicion, how to overcome their suspicions, you know. Uh, because there could be fraud, there could be uh, people uh, thinking that why is this man come all the way from Chennai, which the uh, which the government missionary cannot do, or what one man can do. You know, mine is a completely one man philanthropic uh, initiative. There's no uh, NGO or an organization and things like that. So the skills, uh, of course, like what you brought up, the technology skills are very important. How to clean up the database, how to access the database fast, how to update the database. Uh, these are the technological skills which one can learn or or, or uh, uh, you know take assistance from others you know but uh, what is more important the skills that i have developed is my social skills how to uh, interact with these uh, next of kin how to talk to the armed forces authorities in fact just before this interview i was talking to a commanding officer and he was telling me i just uh, helped you and took up this course because uh, you you know you have the, uh, the power of motivation and convincing uh, me and uh, this I've developed because earlier I used to uh, project a kind of a negative or a uh, you know in, in, not positive uh, picture saying that oh you have not done this you have not reached out now I say that how you can reach out I make it positive and uh, I also try and give them how it will be beneficial to the person who's reaching out. Uh, that it will make them a better person. Uh, it will give them a, a better exposure to connect with their next of kin and also, exp uh, you know, enhance them as a human personality. So skills that I've developed, I think, um, or oh, it's it's uh, ever, ever, ever uh, you know, every day I'm learning new skills. And it's different from different areas of the country, uh, how, the, how you interact with parents, how you interact with uh, children, how you interact. I mean, I, I've heard abuses in all languages, you know, uh, because the first thing that I hear is abuses. Then I, I hear them cry. Then the children come into picture and they uh, bring in the same version. It's Uncle Abhi Kya Karna. What are the next step ahead? You know. So uh, social skills is what I've learned. Of course, technology and policies. I, I, I myself didn't know about a lot of government policies. And uh, so that's what I'm learning every day uh, using Project Saman. It's definitely made me a much more, uh, you know, mature person and much more... Uh, a socially responsible person, and uh, and I I know the power of the network now. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, are there any ways in which others can contribute, help you in, in any way? Well, uh, when, when when people talk about assistance, I think the first thing that comes to people's mind is uh, financial assistance. You know, oh, tell me how can I contribute uh, financially? Uh, uh, that is important, but that's not all. You know, what is most important is awareness. Uh, awareness that yes, Indian Army personnel, 
while in service died because of uh, these circumstances. There are a large number. And unlike any other uh, corporate sector or any other government sector, the armed forces, the next of kin uh, suffers the most because they won't get any compassionate uh, you know, employment. Women are not employed. I mean, uh, just now women have started getting employed. You know, uh, you won't be able to give jobs to them. They're all young widows. Uh, uh, most of them are single breadwinners who have died. You know, uh, one guy gets on the armed forces, the whole family is, is being supported, unlike any other, uh, you know, profession. So awareness, yes, the next of kin of physical casualties are the most affected. To begin with, that's the start. Uh, number two is to make sure that, you know, if you want to contribute uh, financially, uh, then uh, the best way is, you know, I can, uh, you know, connect you to the right uh, uh, group of uh, children and one can direct, uh, directly contribute. And uh, in this also, I always say that it's better to give a limited amount and bridge the gap uh, rather than, you know, give a large amount and uh, or expect, you know, uh, photo opportunities where you're presenting a check and things like that. So because I'm not a registered organization or something, I wouldn't be able to take any donations and things like that. So I would connect you to the right kind of, uh, uh, you know, children, basically for education and a small amount, maybe of 12,000 rupees a year or something, which is 1,000 rupees a month, would be contribute for a particular child per year. And uh, depending on the amount, one can identify and uh, deliver. Uh, but financially, again, I would like to say that, you know, uh, that's not the must. The most important thing is to build awareness, uh, establish the connect. And uh, uh, if you've got any uh, uh, special skills, if you've uh, done some research and things like that, I'm most open. I like to learn uh, how to deal with uh, uh, victims. I mean, next of kin of suicide victims or uh, how uh, rural women in India in a particular area uh, behave on loss of, uh, you know, uh, their loved ones or what is the relationship between uh, in-laws and daughter-in-law and things like that. So if, if somebody's done research, I'm most open to that. Those figures will uh, give me a better understanding. Right, and and any, uh, you know, what, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Oh, well, uh, I, I'm available on uh, the email, uh, which is the project someone. I will uh, uh, share it with you on, uh, you can put it on the show notes, the project someone that gmail.com. I've got a WhatsApp number and I've got a basic website which gives out this WhatsApp number and the email. So uh, then you can Google me up and I'm also available on all social media platforms and instant messaging platforms and uh, one can reach out to me and uh, I will see how I can uh, you know, connect with you and uh, take the services. Great, great. We'll, we'll uh, put those uh, in, in the show notes. So, um, you know, one thing that I remember uh, when I had, you know, visited uh, you, your unit, uh, a few years ago, uh, each vehicle, uh, you know, in, in your unit was named after a gallantry award uh, winner, right? With the citation printed on the dashboard inside. So if I was sitting inside the, uh, you know, in the gypsy, I would actually see, uh, you know, Hoshiar Singh or uh, Banna Singh and, you know, the, the vehicle was named after these PVC winners and, uh, you know, why they got the uh, award was also mentioned there. So I thought this is a fantastic way of, uh, you know, making it a reminder uh, for people, both serving in the army as well as guests like us, for us to know about, uh, you know, what these great heroes uh, have done for us. And also like a great thank you gesture to these uh, heroes, right? 
so what do you think we uh, as as a country as a society should do more to recognize our heroes you know what you're doing as part of project sambandh is is great what about these people where is it that we can do more of what is it that we can do more of well uh, uh, read about them that's the first thing you know uh, like i mentioned uh, i think the beginning of the talk we may i mentioned about how i was inspired by a uh, a uh, serial which is i mean if i look at it now it is not very technologically sound uh, right serial called parambit chakra which is produced by i think chetan anand a uh, brother of devanand but as a, in a young mind it made a lot of impact but also there was only one of the sources at that time and I also grew up reading a lot of comics you know amarchitra katha was a great uh, uh, you know motivation for me there were uh, you know comics about uh, parambit chakra winners you know now they got more comics about parambit chakra winners i think the more you read and also in today's world because a lot of uh, distractions which young adults go through i think uh, even having it in the curriculum helps you know uh, so uh, the armed forces as well as the government of india has also tried to bring it in the curriculum to talk about uh, uh, these uh, brave hearts who have uh, done so much for the country they sacrificed their lives as well as done some gallant acts to introduce them to the curriculum uh, so if you the curriculum definitely you have to answer some questions in the exam so definitely read about it and even if about uh, 10% is, is is there then maybe you could do further reading so i think as uh, young adults uh, uh, start you you know consuming it through the things that you like maybe through uh, you know digital medium uh, there are a lot of uh, short clips uh, there are interviews which are available on various uh, you know internet resources like youtube and uh, other resources uh, if, if you are a, a educator if you are a teacher then uh, introduce these uh, into the curriculum subtly you know if you put that as a chapter then maybe they just mug it up but if you know if you if you bring uh, if you talk about geography and suddenly you say this is actually the birthplace of manoj pandey you know if you're talking about uh, states and capitals and you you come you know you you say okay you come to lucknow you say okay lucknow is where manoj pandey parambit chakra studied you know they'll say who who is manoj pandey so subtly bring it and i think uh, the government of india has got a great initiative called ek bharat shreshth bharat where children from one state uh, learn about another state like tamil nadu paired with jammu kashmir like that subtly you can bring out uh, uh, the the stories of these uh, uh brevas and as a parent i think you should encourage your children to uh explore these uh, kind of resources and uh, once in a while use forums like yours uh, choose to think or any other quiz platforms and things of like that where uh, it's not about winning prizes or things like that but just to gain the knowledge and uh, uh, and also uh, we have brought out uh, the national war memorial you brought out in your talk uh take them out uh, excursions can be uh, organized if, if i mean across india we got war memorials the armed forces will be more than happy to entertain uh, children you know uh, going for passing out parades or training academies going to monuments uh, listening and uh, interacting with veterans uh, in uh, listening and interacting with uh, armed forces soldiers and i think um, these are some of the ways that i can think about whether you are a child or a young adult or educator or a parent uh, there are ways that you can uh, ignite the minds of people like uh, abdul kalam had said right <laughs> perfect so so final question kanal shankar uh, what's next for kanal shankar <laughs> 
uh, what's next? Well, I, I am a person who believes in the present. Uh, so like I told you, uh, I'm a big, big fan of uh, MS Dhoni and he believes that being in the present uh, because past is the experience that you have gained, future don't know. Um, so I believe in the present. So I like to uh, you know, uh, consolidate and the times are very, very difficult now. Imagine um, as someone who's got all the resources, we are finding it difficult. Uh, imagine a widow or a next of kin of a physical casualty during these times of the pandemic. What are the kind of challenges that they have? So I'm trying to uh, develop my skills on how to not physically travel and still be able to solve their uh, you know, grievances or at least address and understand their grievances and how to use technology better. Uh, I mean, this is some new medium that one has discovered in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, one didn't know that one could carry on an interaction like this for nearly an hour and uh, 20 minutes or more than that, you know, uh, I think two hours nearly. Uh, so th these are new skills that I'm trying to develop. Uh, so that's the present. Consolidate, uh, uh, accept what's happening in the world, accept uh, the, the challenges of the pandemic and try and address the grievances as much as one can. Yeah, I think wise words as always. Uh, it was a fantastic, uh, as you say, what two hours, uh, almost close to two hours of, uh, you know, conversation with you. I think, uh, you know, I had a great time uh, trying to pick your brains on, on a bunch of uh, topics. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much. It was uh, great interacting with you and I'm sure your listeners will also uh, uh, could have gained some insights and uh, all the very best. Uh, stay safe, mask up. I can uh, maintain social distances and I think uh, that's the best way and accept uh, uh, control the controllables as MLD. <laughs>